Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Last week I got to go and have some tacos with him after Devoted, and, and I was just blown away. I always knew he was a smart guy, but I never knew he was that smart. But yeah, he's going to leave us to go and, and work for Elon Musk, so going to be making your next Tesla, so that's exciting. Um, pray for him, though. You know, the, Last week I was talking about how uh, when you're trying to go into a new territory or take a new territory is often one of the times that the enemy attacks. And this is definitely that for him. There's a whole lot of new territories. There's the new job moving up north into a place that's you know, not as conservative, not as Christian as the one that we're in, um, moving further away from his family, uh, having to find a new church, a whole bunch of different things going on. And, you know, no doubt the enemy is going to want to keep him from God's best for him. So, uh, yeah, be praying for him. And I'm excited to see and hear about all that the Lord has in store for him up there. All right. If you have your Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. And then... Uh, we could dive right in. Father, I do thank you. I thank you that we get to be here. I thank you for the freedoms that we have here in America. We like to complain about all the things that are going on, all the things that are being taken from us, Lord, and uh, we need to spend more time thanking you for what we do have and the freedom to gather, the freedom to worship, the freedom to have Bibles. I mean, these are Tremendous blessings that most people throughout history haven't enjoyed, Lord. And so we just thank you for those. I thank you for your revelation. Thank you that you choose to reveal yourself to us and show us who you are. And, and we need more of that. Our greatest need in this world is more of you. We need to see you and uh, we need to get right with you and we need to walk with you. And I trust as we do that will be you. But tonight I pray that you would show us yourself. And as we see you, we would be changed in your image as we behold your glory. So we commit tonight to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing our study in the book for the epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And tonight we're going to pick up in the second chapter. I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago as we were covering chapter one that this is a universal letter. That this is a letter that is written, uh, if you read the ancient manuscripts, it says uh, the apostle Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at blank. It's just, there's a blank there. And the idea was that it was a circulatory letter, that it would be taken to Asia Minor, and each of the seven churches of Revelation would fill their name in in that blank. So it was a letter to applied to all of the churches, and furthermore, it's a letter that isn't addressing any specific issues at any one church. So this is a universal letter. It applies to every church and every age directly. We don't have to figure out what the problem in that church is and how it applies to our church here. This is directly to every single believer, and I am thankful for that. So... After the introduction in chapter 1, we really have two really long run-on sentences. Verse 3 through 14 is one sentence, and Paul is just going on and on, 205 words about all the blessings that are ours in Christ. These blessings are very theological. It's 
all the things that God has done to save us. He chose us. He predestined us. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he died for us and, and, and bought us. He, he redeemed us. Uh, he, he's made his mystery, this, uh, uh, how he's summing all things up in Christ. He's revealed this to us. He's sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And then the next uh, run-on sentence from verse 15 through 23, the end of the chapter, is Paul praying that the church, the saints, would come to realize that, that God would enlighten them and they'd come to see and to realize all of these blessings that they have in Christ. And that tells us a couple of things. One is that preaching and prayer or theology and prayer go together. You see, we need to understand the Spirit's role in Revelation. The Spirit of God uh, inspired the Bible. The writers were writing under the inspiration of God, so they were writing the, the very words of God. But when we read the Bible, we try to understand it and apply it. We need the Spirit's help as well. It's a spiritual message, and we're not necessarily spiritual people. So we need the illumination of the Spirit of God. And that's what Paul was praying for, that the church would have that illumination. In chapter 2, which we're getting into tonight, is really just an illustration of verses 19 and 20 in chapter 1. Paul was praying again that they would be enlightened, that they would understand the hope of their calling, that they would um, understand the riches and the glory and the inheritance of the saints in verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power to those who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he bought or brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So he's giving us an illustration in chapter 2 of what this power does. And we're going to see first that applies to individuals. We're going to see tonight how this power is able to take someone literally from the graveyard to glory. Able to take somebody that's dead and make them spiritual, spiritually alive. And next week we're going to see how it's able to reconcile two groups that are hostile towards each other, Gentile and Jew. You can't become more hostile than that. They hated each other. They were as different and as far apart as you could be. It would be like a, a MAGA person and an Antifa person, and them coming together and having fellowship and being one. Well, it's the power of the gospel. It's resurrection power that is able to do that. In other words, the, the, the resurrection, it fixes relationships. Relationships between people and God and people with each other. But tonight's message I've entitled, The Story of Your Life, because that's exactly what it is. Paul, in these 10 verses, is giving us our life story. He's giving you your life story. It's as if he's writing a biography, a spiritual biography about you. And if you're not saved, this, which I don't think anyone here isn't, this needs to become your story. But this is your story. There's other titles that are fitting for this chapter or other ways that these verses could be summarized. One would be from the grave to glory or dead without Christ to alive with Christ. Now, I have to admit, though, that I am feeling a bit of pressure here. There is a whole lot of truth in these 10 verses. I was tempted to shorten the passage for tonight uh, because I have a hard time when I have a lot of 
stuff that I want to talk about in a short amount of time. But, uh, I mean, th th there's a lot here. Literally, you could take these 10 verses and spend weeks talking about it. In fact, the class that I'm teaching for the School of Discipleship right now on understanding salvation, uh, these 10 verses are really a summary of that. And I'm having a hard time getting through all of that in 10 weeks or eight weeks. So I'm definitely feeling some pressure tonight. I'm going to be moving fast. So you guys uh, could be praying for me. Or we might, you know, have a, uh, a long night. Hopefully we don't have any Eutychuses here, right? But let's look at chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 1. And you were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, well, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Verses 1 through 7 is another long run-on sentence. I guess Paul isn't very into punctuation, or at least not very good at it. And guess what? The Holy Spirit used him to write inspired scripture. So there's hope for me. There's hope for you. You don't need to be good at punctuation to be used by God. Praise God for that. But these verses here are going to show us our past, our present, and our future. And it's interesting to me that in the very middle of these four verses, is verse 4, and it's all about God. In other words, God really is the subject of this passage that we're storing, studying tonight. Yes, we're looking at the story of our life, uh, but God is the subject even of that. Uh, Romans 11, verse 36 says, For in him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Of him and to him and through him, and, and, and that's really our life. That's what salvation is all about. It's all about God. It's all God's work. Salvation is 100% an act of God. And we're going to see that here tonight. For letter A, fill in the word dead. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 one more time here. In verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In these three verses that I just read, 
Paul paints a really dark picture. He's going to go show us uh, the spiritual reality of the world. He's not telling us this to make us feel bad or to kind of dog on the world or to give credit to the enemy. He's painting us this picture kind of as a backdrop so he could show us how great the grace of God is. If I were to go buy an engagement ring, right? And, and by the way, I got one for sale if anybody needs one. But if I were to go buy an engagement ring, I walk into like the, the jeweler, right? And, uh, and I say, hey, you know, I like that diamond. He's not just going to like pull it out and set it on the glass counter. No, first he's going to put down a black piece of felt. And then he's going to put the diamond on that because with the black backdrop, the beauty of the diamond, the splendor of the diamond shows all the more. And that's essentially what Paul is doing with these first three verses. He's showing us how dark, how depraved our nature is so that we could see just how glorious and how powerful our Savior is. Everything that God has done to bring us from darkness into the light. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is giving us this amazing, amazing backdrop. So in verse 1, we're dead in the realm of sin. Fill in the words dead in realm. In verse 1, he says, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The word for sin is the Greek word harmatia, and it literally means to miss the mark. And I think we kind of get the idea, wrong idea about this, though, because this idea when we hear that sin means to miss the mark, it's kind of like we got our bow and arrow, and we got it pulled back, and we're just staring at the bullseye, and we let that arrow go, and, and we just barely miss the middle of it. right? We're just a little bit off. Right, but but that I guess kind of, but but I think the truth is really that we're not even aiming at the right bullseye altogether. We're aiming at some other bullseye, and we're just a little bit off on that. So yeah, to sin means to to miss the mark. Now a trespass is a little bit different. A trespass is literally means to step over the line. It, it's the word parapito. It means to willful disobedience. It means here's the line and. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to step over it anyways. You know, I used to be a really, really bad driver. I didn't really care about the laws, but one day I, I, I'd first gotten my license and I was trying to obey the laws and I was just kind of trying to go with the flow of traffic and I'm just driving along and I look in my mirror and I see these lights flashing. And so I pull over and the cop pulls me over. I guess I was going 71 miles an hour and I got my first ticket. You know, I, I, I sinned. I missed the mark. I I was trying to do the right thing. It just didn't happen. About six months later, I'm with my friend, and I'm telling him about how I could get home all the way to Anaheim from USC in a half hour. And he's like, yeah, right. And I'm like, I'll bet you. Right? And so I'm flying. I got the pedal to the metal. I'm going about 120. And same thing. There's lights in my rearview mirror, and I pull over. The cop walks up, and he's like, you have any idea how fast you're going? And my response was, not as fast as you trying to catch me. And by the way, that's not the right response. And he gave me a ticket for 120. Uh, that is trespass. That is willingly going over the line. So there's a difference here between a sin and a trespass. Now, Paul didn't write this to necessarily point out the differences between sins and trespasses. You see, he's saying that we're dead in the realm of sin, in the realm of trespasses. It, it, it's about that being our nature. Is being having a sin nature, having a, a trespass nature. 
And this distinction makes all the difference in the world. You see, we're not dead because we sin. We sin because we're dead. We don't sin because, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And dead really is a good metaphor for the unregenerate or unsaved person. The Bible speaks of death as separation, right? When the spirit or soul departs the body, that person is is dead. Uh, but we're talking about someone being spiritually dead, then being separated from God. Remember God told Adam and Eve that the day they eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good evil, that they would surely die. And they are tempted, they eat of it, and they die. First, they die spiritually. They're separated from God. They no longer have fellowship with God. And then their body eventually breaks down, decays, and physically dies. But that sin, that original sin that Adam and Eve, eating the forbidden fruit, brought about death. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, nor is his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Romans 5 tells us that uh, anyone that comes from Adam, which is everybody, is born in the likeness of Adam, dead, separated from God. In other words, we're dead on arrival. We're DOA. We're the walking dead, right? Walking around like zombies is the idea spiritually. But the reason that this picture, this metaphor of death is so apt for the spiritually unregenerate is because dead people can't respond to stimuli, right? If I go into the morgue and I shine a flashlight in the dead person's eyes, there's going to be no response. Their pupils aren't going to dilate, right? If I go in there and I, you know, take a foghorn and, and blow it in their ear. Nothing's going to happen. I could take a knife and I could stab them in the thigh. And nothing's going to happen. They have no feeling. They have no sense. It's because they are dead. And those not in Christ can't respond to God either. They can't hear God's word. They can't see God's light. They can't walk with God. They can't enjoy fellowship with him. They can't talk to God. God doesn't even listen to the prayers of the wicked, the Bible says. They are dead. They're alienated from God. Listen to this. There was this guy named Jeremy Bentham who lived in the 18th century. He was a philosopher, among other things. And he was, the, he was considered the founder of uh, utilitarianism. Uh, this was what we call the greatest happiness principle. And he's an interesting figure uh, in more ways than one. His name actually appears in the TV show Lost as an alias for the character John Locke. But in, in his will, in Bentham's will, uh, he apparently left a fortune to a London hospital. But there was one condition for them to receive this fortune. Uh, Bentham had to be present at every board meeting. And reportedly, for more than 100 years, the remains of Jeremy Bentham were wheeled into the boardroom every month and placed at the head of the table. His skeleton was dressed in 17th century garb, and he had a little hat which sat on his wax head. In the minutes of every board reading, a line read, Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. Right? I think that's a great picture of the spiritually dead. 
They're literally like walking around at Weekend at Bernie's, right? And you could try everything you want to dress them up, to animate them, and all of that. You add all the religion you want to their world, all the good works you want to them, and they'll never be alive. They're dead. They need something to bring them to life. In the movie The Princess Bride, there was this character named Miracle Max. And he would walk around and he would say, hey, they're not dead. They're mostly dead. But that's not true in reality. Fallen people aren't mostly dead. They're totally dead. Some might look better than others, but they're all equally dead. Now, in that morgue I was talking about, there would be people's uh, different levels of decay. Some would smell a lot better, and some would smell a lot worse. Some wouldn't look as dead as others, you know, but they're, in the, or they're all dead. That is the process. Or that is the, the, the point that I am making. And, and so, too, when we look at the world, you could look at fallen people, and some of them look more dead than others. Some of them are more what we'd call reprobate than others. Some of them are into greater sins than others. But they are all equally dead. Our culture doesn't like this idea. The idea of total, it's the idea of total depravity. Uh, but it's an important thing for us to realize. You see, if we don't diagnose the problem right, we can't administer the right treatment, and we're never going to come to the right cure for these people that need our help. All the self-help, positive thinking, counselors, detention centers, self-love, philosophy in the world will never bring a corpse out of the grave into life. There's only one cure for the problems of this world, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus understood this when Nicodemus, the most righteous man in all of Israel, comes to him. The guy's on the Sanhedrin. He's the teacher in Israel, the third richest guy in all of Jerusalem. Like Everybody looked up to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes to him, and he says, hey, good teacher, we know that you come from God because nobody else could do the works you're doing unless they come from God. And Jesus is like, hey, Nick, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. Right? He, he knew that, hey, Nick was dead. It wasn't about adding something to Nicodemus's life. It wasn't about taking something away from Nicodemus's life. He had to have a second birth. He had to have a birth from above to even see the kingdom of heaven. That's how dead his senses were. So we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We once were. The world still is. Number two, we were drifting. Look at verse two. It says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Now, walk is a word that Paul likes to use. He uses it often in the book of Ephesians. He says things like walk worthy, walk circumspectly, walk in love. Be careful how you walk. Walk usually means kind of uh, your manner of life, how one arranges their life. The way that you live your life is your walk. But here Paul uses this word peripeteo a little bit differently. Scholars say that this word, the way that Paul uses it here, it could literally mean to kind of meander, to browse, to walk about, to walk in circles. Right? And the obvious illustration here is the children of Israel walking around in circles in the desert, wandering around for 38 years, not really going anywhere, progressing in their relationship with God, not really getting any closer to the promised land. That is the idea. 
And when we were unbelievers, we were walking dead, and we weren't getting any closer to heaven. We could try the best. We could try to be the best we could, but we couldn't get any closer to heaven. We, we, we could add any religion to our lives, but we're not getting any closer to heaven. We're not getting closer to Jesus. We're just going about our life and walking in circles, kind of not really going anywhere. And it's only in Christ that we find meaning and purpose in our lives. And that meaning or purpose is getting closer to God, uh, progressing in the kingdom, uh, progressing in our race to heaven. You know, it, it's interesting. Paul likes to use an, an analogy, and, and that's of running a race for the Christian. Because everyone's got a, a race in front of them. We need to run this race like we're going to win. Well, it never talks about the non-believer having a race. They're wandering around in the parking lot, you know, looking for the, the track. They never even made it to the starting line because they're lost. Point number three, we were disobedient. Look at verses 2 and 3a. He says, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as <coughs> the rest. So this verse shows us that we're, we were disobedient to God. Instead of following God, we were actually following evil forces. We had three enemies that were keeping us lost, keeping us wandering, and keeping us from actually having life in, with God. The first one is, is that we followed the world. So fill in the, world, the word world. We walked according to the course of this world. Right? We just did what the world did. Whatever the fad of the day was, we participated in it in our old life. The world embraced this social justice gospel and BLM. So we did too. The world went cuckoo over this gender nonsense. And so we participated in it. The world panicked over COVID because it was afraid of death. And we were right there with it. Now, I know those things aren't true of us, but that's what the world was doing the last few years. That's what the unregenerate was doing. And that's what they will do. They'll just follow and embrace whatever the world's doing. They'll follow that path. Next, we followed Satan, following the world Satan. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In the scriptures, uh, Satan is called the god of this world. Through the fall, Adam and Eve, uh, through the fall of Adam and Eve, Satan usurped the authority that God had. Uh, kind of to run this world system and has now been working to, dis, to deceive people so that they would disobey God and not come to spiritual life. Uh, this word, world system that we followed, we, or, or this world that we were a part of, that we were kind of just following the world, the course of this world, we kind of did that mindlessly. I mean, there really wasn't any thinking. It was like monkey see, monkey do. That's what they're doing. I want to be a part of the in crowd. Uh, here Satan is doing something a little different. Him, him and his demons, they're working to deceive people. He's working to trick our minds into accepting counterfeits 
instead of Christ. He uses strongholds, things like the media, things like secular education, philosophy, psychology, to lure people into groups of people and then keep those people from leaving and coming to the truth. The LGBTQ movement is a perfect example of this. It really is satanic in my estimation, especially when it comes to things like transgenderism. You see, we're created in the image of God. And one of the ways that we're image bearers of God is that we're able to reproduce and create other image bearers of God. Now, Satan, he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want us to glorify God. He doesn't want us to look like God. He doesn't want us to participate in the things that God does. And so kind of the ultimate end form of that is getting people to mutilate their sexual organs so that there's no way they can ever reproduce and be a part of that. So that they disfigure their body so that they're harming this image of God. And so Satan is working hard to bring these people then, once they've done that, into groups of other people who think the same way. And then Satan uses the people in those groups to make sure that these people don't get out. That's essentially what a stronghold is. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5 says, The weapons of our wherefore are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the good news is, is that these strongholds can be broken, that people can be rescued out of these strongholds. Even people that have mutilated themselves, there's hope for those people. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? He's a eunuch. He's been mutilated. And he's sitting there and he's reading Isaiah 12, or Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53 in his chariot. Remember, Philip comes up to him and he has no understanding of what these things meant. And then Philip starts explaining them to him. Well, you know what it says in Isaiah 53? It says he was cut off for our transgressions. Can you imagine how the Ethiopian eunuch must have felt when he heard that? You see, they might not be able to reproduce physically, but... In the kingdom, we're able to reproduce spiritually even a greater reproduction capacity. But he wants to bring us into these strongholds and deceive us, and he wants to keep us from the truth. Thirdly, we followed our own sinful desires, the flesh, fill in the word flesh. Verse 3 says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh and indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Even without the fallen world's influence and the demonic influence, we'd still find ways to sin because of our fallen nature. It's within us, right? We're dead. We're separated from God. It's all that we can do. You see, we all have desires contrary to God. That's our fallen nature. And at one time, we had no power over them. We were dead to stop them from dominating our lives. We just lived in the flesh. That's who they were. That's who we were. And Paul goes on in, in Galatians 5 to describe what the flesh is, what, what these uh, fleshly attitudes, these fleshly behaviors are. In verses 19 through 21, he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, Factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like 
these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we look back to before we are Christians, and these are the things that dominated our life. Even now, as Christians, we struggle with some of these things. But right before this, he says that if we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. But that's because we've been removed from that. We have the Spirit. We have spiritual life. We've been reconciled to God. So we don't have to give in to those. In Romans 8, 8, Paul says that it's uh, for those that are in the flesh, they cannot please God. It's impossible for somebody who's dead in their trespasses and sins, who lives in their fleshly nature, to please God in any way at all. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it speaks of this. He says the human heart, it's desperately sick. It's deceitful above all else. And so I like what one pastor said here about this uh, fleshly or this dead nature that we had. He says, did Paul get carried away here? Is our condition really this bad? Yes, this is the truth. While humans bear the image of God and sin has not destroyed the image of God completely, we are radically depraved and unable to come to God apart from new birth. Our behavior is explained by all three of these influences, the world, Satan, and the flesh. They all play a part in the sinful condition of man. Theologically, Paul is describing the doctrine of total depravity. That is, all aspects of our being have been infected with the deadly disease of sin. Paul is also describing our total inability. That is, morally, we're not capable of responding to God apart from grace. The fact is, we do not want to respond to God. But, oh, how we need God's grace. Lastly, we were doomed. Fill in the word doom. Uh, in verse 3, it says, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, we were under the wrath of God, and we were destined for wrath. Our life was categorized by wrath. In John 3, just right after the famous verse in John 3, 16, uh, John, either John or Jesus, goes on to say this in verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, what brings wrath upon us is disbelief in who Jesus is. And we're all born unbelievers. None of us are born believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 36, the chapter ends this way. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So this seems pretty dark. We are really in this bad place. A lot of our loved ones are stuck in this darkness, right? But there's hope. Look at verse 4. It says, but God. But God, these are probably the two most encouraging words in the entire Bible. In my Bibles, but God is underlined or circled. It is marked out because we all need to remember, but God. Forty-five times in the Bible, these two words, these six letters, are next to each other, but God. You know, God was going to flood the earth and destroy everyone, but God remembered Noah. The giant was too big for David, but God was too big for the giant. 
In Genesis 17, 9, Sarah and Abram were too old to have kids. But God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And Joseph's life kept going from bad to worse. But God was with him. Saul sought after David with all his might. But God would not deliver David into his hand. In Psalm 49, it says that I may die, but God will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Psalm 64, the enemy will attack, but God will shoot at him with an arrow. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus was dead in the grave, but God rose him from the dead. You know, there's this lady, I told you guys about her. Her name is Amanda Bass. She's actually the one that gave me this Bible as a gift. And I've known her. She, she lives in, uh, in Tennessee, and I've, uh, she has a terminal illness. And, you know, she's really been going through it, her and her family. And she texted me this week and said, I had to have two surgeries this week, and it's not looking good. She was really discouraged. I texted her back two words, but God. <laughs> that was my response, but God. You see, the world meant this for evil, but God will use it for good. The enemy was trying to isolate her and separate her from what she loves, but God is with her. The enemy is trying to destroy her faith, but God is increasing it. The enemy is trying to kill her witness, but God is making it stronger. And I want to tell you this, whatever you're going through, there is a but God for it. I'll be the first one to admit, I don't like our president. I don't like. Joe Biden, there's hardly anything I like about him. And I don't like our governor either. I don't like Gavin Newsom. And the two of them really bug me. But God, I know that God has them there for a purpose. I know that God is the one that put them there. I know that God is the one who's accomplishing his plan through these people. God's using them to make me long for my true home. God's using them to make me long for the one and only righteous king that is coming. There's a but God for every problem that you have. And if you take anything away tonight, let it be that. But God, whatever situation you're in, whatever hardship you're going through, when it feels like the whole world is coming at you, remember, but God, and you will make it. You will be all right. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that but God is the entire gospel in two words. We can't underestimate the power of, but God. So we saw who we were to begin with, right? Who, who we were born as. And now we see, but God. We see the, the power of God to change things. Now for letter B, we're going to see, but with Christ, we are spiritually alive. So fill in the word alive. Let's look at verses four through seven. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For that, number one, our salvation is rooted in God's character. Fill in the words character. That's what we really see in verses 4 through 7. It says, but God was rich in mercy uh, because of his great love with which he loved us. 
so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, mercy, love, kindness, grace, these are all attributes of God. It is who God is. And God wanting to display these attributes of his chose us to display them through. He chose us to be the agents that he was going to display his life-giving attributes through. In Romans 5.8 it says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, the greatest display of love in the world was directed towards you and I. That was the cross of Jesus Christ. God wanting to show just how much he loves us. And I want to add something. These verbs are in the perfect tense. They're actually what we'd call the, the, the perfect uh, passive tense. The perfect tense in, in, in Greek, it's a little bit different. It's in action that's completed, but has ongoing results or ongoing consequences. And the passive mood means that it's something that happens to us. It's not something that we are doing ourselves. So we've been saved and we're being saved. Right? The, the effect of what happened 2,000 years ago saved us. We've been saved. It's been applied to our life. But as we progress as Christians, we're progressively being saved. We've been raised up with Christ. We're seated with him in the heavens. But as we grow in Christ, we will raise and be seated to a greater degree. God will forever be gracious to us in Christ. We will always be a trophy of God's infinite grace. So feeling gracious and trophy. Trying to speed up a little bit here for uh, time's sake. See, God's grace is forever going to be in our lives. Forever we will be recipients of God's grace. We will always be experiencing his unmerited favor. That's what grace is. Even throughout eternity, he's going to continually be gracious. Even when we're delivered from this sin body, even when we're delivered from this sin world, even when Satan is bound, he's still going to continue to be gracious. We're constantly, forever, going forward, going to be getting things that we don't deserve. We're going to be getting a kindness from the Lord that doesn't belong to us. And not only will we be recipients of His grace, but we will always be displays of His grace. Uh, some of my friends that are uh, real into Calvinism, real into what we call the, the doctrines of grace, they tend to get a little uh, prideful. Anybody know anybody like that? How many Calvinist friends that you know, tend to be a little bit prideful? Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. It really doesn't. I like to remind these friends of mine that God only chose them to magnify his grace. Right? They make God look extra gracious. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that, Paul, that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And, and the reason that God chose them was because they were weak, because they were foolish, because they were extra big sinners, that it would magnify his grace. I mean, just look and listen to Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 15. It says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, or I'm chief. I'm the chief of sinners. God chose me because in me it would display the greatest amount of grace there is possible. I would be the biggest trophy of grace that God could possibly have. The reason that God chose me is because there was nobody else that he could show that amount of grace. And Paul is saying, and the same is true for you and I. Forever, through this world and through eternity, we're going to be trophies of God's grace. I believe throughout eternity, one of the ways that we're going to spend eternity, one of the ways that we're going to see the many facets of who God is and, and, and the greatness of our God is by sharing our testimonies with one another, telling people just how dead we were and how alive God made us, just how sinful we were and, and how God redeemed us and transformed us and all the good that God brought out of our lives. We are going to forever be trophies of grace. Let us see, in Christ, we are God's workmanship. Outside of Christ, we're dead. In Christ, we're made alive. Now in Christ, we are God's workmanship. Look at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Man, I wish I had a few weeks to spend on those two verses, but I don't. Okay? So for number one, fill in, salvation is a gift. Verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. I can confidently say faith is a gift because Paul will say it other ways. You see, there's some debate here about these, this verse, Ephesians 2.8, and whether he's talking about faith being a gift, grace being a gift, or salvation being a gift. And I want to say that it's all of the above. It's all a gift. All of salvation is a gift. Grace, faith, salvation, we didn't earn or deserve any of it. It is all a gift. And I can confidently say this is a gift because Paul does in other places. In Philippians 1.29, he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted, it has been given to you to believe in Christ, to have faith in Christ. Acts 3.16 says something similar. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And this faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Right, this guy who was lame is sitting there and he gets healed because he was given faith from Jesus Christ. Peter says something similar. 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. 
the faith that's received, the faith that is given. And could I remind you that God's not an Indian giver. If he's giving you the gift of salvation, he's never going to take it away. It, it is yours. And here and in verse 4, Paul makes it extremely clear that we are not saved by our works. Every other religion says in the world that we are saved by our works. They all have some form of uh, system that is pictured like this. One day we're going to die and we're going to go up to the pearly gates and Peter's going to be standing there and there's going to be this giant scale, right? You're going to put all your good works on one side and all your bad works on the other side and see which side has the balance. Right? And if your good works outweigh your bad works, then you get to go in. And if your bad works outweigh your good works, then uh, sorry. Right? But that is not the true case because none of us would have enough good works to outweigh our bad works. Because outside of Christ, we can't do anything good. The Bible says whatever's not done in faith is a sin. And no unbeliever is doing anything in obedience or in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. But on another sense, I, I think that they're somewhat right. This metaphor, this picture that we get of the world system about putting your works on one side or the other. Because the Bible does teach that we will be judged by our works. We're not saved by our works, but we will be judged by our works. You see, but the, we've all sinned, right? Adam and Eve sinned. They broke the covenant with God, the covenant of of works. They had one law. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate from it. They failed it. God's standard was perfect, perpetual obedience, and they didn't do it. But God, right, was so gracious that he made a second covenant, a covenant of grace, and made a way that we could use a substitute, use a substitute's works. And Jesus came and he fulfilled the law perfectly. He had perfect, perpetual obedience to not one law, but 613 laws. You see, the, the life of Christ is just as important as the death of Christ. Because Jesus could die for our sins, but that's not good enough to get us into heaven. You see, because we need righteousness. There's a righteous standard to get into heaven. Jesus says that the Spirit's going to come and it's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And sin, because it doesn't believe in me. And righteousness, because I ascend to the Father. And in judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. But he says, in righteousness, because I ascend to the Father. You see, when Jesus ascended on the Mount of Olives into heaven, he displayed what God's standard for going into heaven was. It was perfect righteousness. So if Jesus only died on the cross, but he never lived a perfect life, we would have no righteousness to stand in. You see, but as it is now, there was this double imputation. When Jesus was on the cross, our life was imputed to him, and his life was imputed to ours. It was like we traded our life and our future for Jesus' life and Jesus' future. And because of our faith in Christ, his perfect life, his perfect works are imputed to us. And so now, when we stand before God, the scale goes ding, 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 and all the way down here, because it only has good works in us. That's how we're able to go in to heaven. But we need these good works. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the glory of God. So God gloriously made another way. Jesus came and fulfilled the law, and by grace we're able to have 
his perfect life. The, the Catholic Church says that we need grace plus works. Well, if we take Jesus' works and we add any other work to them, they're no longer perfect works, and they don't meet God's righteous standard. Often people, I hear them say this, that James and Paul are uh, saying two different things, that they're in conflict with each other. But I don't think they are. I think they were talking about two different things altogether. I think Paul is talking about how one gets saved. Right? We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. I think James was talking about how we know that we're saved, how we have confidence that we've truly been saved, what, that, how we have evidence that we have experienced true justification. Listen to what James says in chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 26. He says, but some may well say, you have heard, and I have, or you have faith, and I have works. So some may say, they're making a proclamation of their faith, that you have faith and I have works. And he says, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that without works, or faith without works is useless? Uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. He's not talking about how you get saved here. He's talking about how your salvation is evidence. It's evidence through works. Abraham wasn't saved when he went to sacrifice his son. He, he was saved when he believed God, and it was counted him as righteousness. But his justification was displayed. It was realized. It was proven when he was willing to sacrifice his son. See, faith is the root, and grace is the fruit of salvation, or works is the fruit of salvation. Faith is the root, and works is the fruit of salvation. Although they have no part in gaining salvation, good works have a great deal to do with living out our salvation. No work, good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. Jesus says, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. John 15, 8. Good works do not bring discipleship, but prove it's genuine. When God's people do good deeds, they bear fruit for his kingdom and bring glory to his name. That's why Jesus says, let your light so shine before men, that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Point number two, there's no boasting allowed. Verse 9 says, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. If you want to boast, Paul's going to give us something 
to boast about, Galatians 6.14. But may it never be that I would boast except for in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or how about 2 Corinthians 12.9? And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. We can never boast about our performance before God. It's all grace. We have nothing to boast about. If we want to boast, we could boast about our God. We could boast about how gracious our God is. We could boast about the power of our God. Number three, you are God's masterpiece. Verse 10, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This word workmanship, it's the Greek word poema. It's the word that we get poem from. You are literally God's work of art. You are his masterpiece. You are his trophy of grace. You might say, I don't feel like a masterpiece. My life's a wreck. There's nothing but mess-ups and blunders in my life. How could you say my life is a masterpiece? Well, I would say maybe you're still in process. Maybe you're under construction. Someone once saw Michelangelo banging on this huge rock with a hammer. And he was like, what are you doing? And Michelangelo responded, I'm liberating a masterpiece from this rock. That's what God is doing in you. He's creating a masterpiece out of your life. And maybe he just hasn't chiseled enough of it away yet for you to be able to see that masterpiece. Can I remind you something? Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will finish this masterpiece. I have this friend in Israel, and he owns this store, and they make what are called micro-mosaics. These things are amazing. Little, little pieces of stone that have been broken off of other stones. They've been discarded. They've been trampled on by other people. He goes around and he finds these tiny pieces of stone. And then he spends hours meticulously putting them together so that they end up making this masterpiece, this piece of art. And that's exactly what God is doing in our life. Maybe God's using these moments of hurt and brokenness to create micro mosaics. Maybe the problem is that we're just not far enough away from the brokenness. We're not far enough away from the hurt to be able to see the beauty that God is creating out of them. But we can trust that he is, because what does he do? He exchanges ashes for beauty, right? He, he takes dead things and he brings them to glory. He's making a masterpiece out of our life. Or maybe some of us, all of us really, need to just have some more of the grave clothes removed from us. Remember when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb? Here it is in John 11, 43 and 44. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. By the way, that's exactly what he did for you and I. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he said, Joe, come forth. And I came to life. Someone said that it's a good thing that he used the word Lazarus or hundreds of people would have started coming out of the tombs. And then it says in verse 44, the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, his disciples, unbind him 
and let him go. You see, this is why we need each other. This is why we need the church. When we come to fellowship, when we come to groups like this, we minister to one another. We're essentially taking the grave clothes off of each other, unbinding each other, so that we can live out and walk in the freedom that God wants us to have. We can glorify God in the way that he wants us to glorify him. But if we're never in fellowship with other believers, we're just going to hop around in grave cloths. Like, you know, we're not going to be able to do much in this life. Last point, salvation results in good works. That evidence that we're truly saved is that we display good works. Good works are the evidence that we are truly saved. One thing that I find neat about this is that God has good works planned for us to walk into. All we do is, need to do is just be faithful. We need to follow Jesus, and we will have good works. And this is really encouraging, because this means that not only was our justification planned from the beginning, was it predestined, but our sanctification has been predestined and planned from the beginning as well. God has planned from eternity past how he is going to use us to glorify his name the works that he's going to put in our life to bring us into greater and greater amounts of liberty and greater and greater amounts of uh, works and capacity to honor and glorify his name. He's ordained in eternity past the people he's going to put in our life that are going to unwrap the grave clothes from us. All of this has been planned. We just need to be faithful and follow Jesus. So in this passage, we see our light. Our life, this is our biography, past, present, and future. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were totally depraved, as far away from God as you could possibly be. But God made us alive in Christ Jesus. He's raised us from the dead. He's seated us in the heavens. He's done amazing things for us. And he's got good works. He's got glory for us in the future. Let's pray. God, I do thank you. I thank you for this reality in my life. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was blind and now I could see. And what a testimony that is. I thank you for these people. I thank you that that's true in their lives as well. I pray that you would take this word and you'd hide it in our hearts so we wouldn't sin against you, Lord. But also that you'd use it to give us wisdom, give us enlightenment, how to minister to the people around us that haven't yet come out of the grave. The people that need that but God in their life, Lord. And, and I pray that some of these good works that you have planned for us to walk into would be sharing the gospel with family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, people that need to be raised to life. And I pray that you would give them spiritual life, that you would raise them from the dead and repeat that process over and over again. We look forward to your coming. We can't wait till we're totally in glory. But help us to be faithful until then. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.